Okay, welcome everybody. Omkar, nice to have you here. Uh, Rama Mohan. And uh, I already said hi to Marosh Karolina and Krishna Kumari. So, um, so last week we left off where, um, so Devidas had gone to meet his father's guru and he was very impressed by him, right? You know, they talked about Vedanta and what's the best commentary and things like this. And then Devidas, the son of Lahir Mahashaya, asked if he could become, like basically start studying Vedanta under um, Vaishnavdas Babaji. But Vaishnavdas Babaji said, well, you know, my life and soul is just to serve the Vaishnavs and chant Harinam, so I don't have time for any Vedanta. And so, but maybe you should check out the commentary of Mahaprabhu that was written down by different devotees on the Vedanta Sutra. And so after that, um, uh, Devidas came back to the kutir of Lahiri Mahashaya and like told the whole story of what had happened. And uh, Lahiri was, of course, very happy about it. But then Devidas again kind of came out with why he had come there in the first place, which was to take his dad back home to Shantipur. And so that's where we're at right now. And we'll just continue from there. And uh, so then Devidas says, well, you know, actually the, the real reason, although I'm learning all this stuff about the Vaishnava Dharma and, and Vedanta and stuff, the real reason I came nonetheless is that I, I wanted to take you back home and the whole family wants you to return and then Lahiri said that says that um, he's taken a pledge to never uh, enter a home that's opposed to bhakti 
So if you wanna want to have me come back home, then first you, all, all you have to become Vaishnavs. And uh, Devidas is kind of blown away by this because he says, well, what are you talking about? Like we worship the deity every day in our home and we host Vaishnavs and we don't disrespect Harinam. So like, what's the question of us not being Vaishnavs already? Excuse me. And um, this thing brings an interesting thought to my mind. The fact that previously, like we talked about, talked about it last time, um, Lahiri Mahashai said that that he used to call his son an atheist, but now he doesn't criticize anybody because he understands how Adhikar works and he understands that everybody's working according to their Adhikar, which in Latin, the last class I kind of um, equated somewhat with that uh, Brene Brown idea of everybody's, you know, in general, everybody's doing the best they can with whatever they have to work with. But one thing that I forgot to mention, or maybe it just didn't come to my mind at that point, is that although Lahir Mahasha is saying that, that um, he doesn't criticize anybody and he sees that people have different adhikars, that doesn't mean, nonetheless, it doesn't mean that we don't discriminate. And let me explain what I mean with that. Or like make judgments in a way, or judgment calls. Because... Um, Although Lahir Mahashai said he doesn't criticize anybody, he's still saying that I'm not going to come with you because I don't associate with you. <laughs> like if somebody told you, you know, I don't criticize you, but I don't want to spend any time with you, that you could take that as a form of criticism, right? And I think it it's kind of a subtle point. I think it, it has to be thought about a little more to I think, understand what the principle is behind it. Because in the West, I think it's very easy to think that, that not criticizing anybody means that you think that everybody is on equal footing in every way. I mean, there's this very strong uh, push for equality and, and kind of like leveling the play, playing field in, uh, in the West. And, you know, it has a lot of good sides to it as well taking down this or breaking down this like artificial uh hierarchy based on just like position instead of natural qualities but there is some kind of a hierarchy based on people's natural qualities that is you could say like a more like a natural hierarchy in terms of uh especially who you want to associate with um and it doesn't mean like lahiri mahashai doesn't criticize anybody because he recognizes that there are different levels, basically, and people act according to the level they're at. But at the same time, he is making that judgment call that he doesn't want to associate with people who affect his bhakti in a negative, negative way. And if you misunderstand that principle, then you could think of it as a criticism of like saying, you're lower than me. I have higher adhikar. I'm so elevated, so I'm not going to you know, waste my time in your bad company or something like that. But, of course, that's not at all Lahiri Mahashai's attitude. It's more like I'm a servant of the Vaishnavas. I'm a servant of, of Bhakti Devi. And to do my service in the best possible way, I need to keep good company that my consciousness stays, stays clean and all stays like elevated in the way of 
being connected with uh, bhakti instead of uh, maya or the, the karmic realm. So I think that's the way of really looking at it. It's good to remember that this kind of non-criticism is not this kind of like sentimental, completely just like undiscriminating, unconditional love in every way. Although that does happen, then later on, when you become a uttamarikari, it's said that at that point, then you actually break through this need to discriminate because then there is no question of you having any other influence in your life than bhakti. You, you can't stop the flow of bhakti anymore. You're completely in the flow, as they say. And so at that point, who cares about discriminating about anything? You're just like constantly in this ragatmika stage of experiencing bhakti firsthand. And there's zero, nothing can stop it at that point anymore. Anyway, kind of a long segue here. So let's get back to the story. So, okay. So Lahir Mahashaya says, well, yeah, just become devotees and I'll, I'll be happy to come back home. And then, you know, the son is like, what are you talking about? We are Vaishnavs. And then Lahir says, like Vaishnavs, and you do all the right things and you say all the right things, but And David asks, well, how do we become real Vaishnavs? And then, um, oh, unstable internet. Oh, shoot. Hold on just a second. Oh, I hope, yeah, Omkar is moving on the video. Good. Sorry about that. I have some uh, two different networks here, so they keep jumping sometimes. Anyway, so then uh, the son asks, well, well, what do we have to do to become real Vaishnavs, you know? And, and Lahir says, well, you got to, like, leave all of your Naimitika um, duties. The kind of like, what's the translation? The duties that are not eternal and only do the nitya dharma of, of Vaishnav dharma. And of course, for somebody like Devidas, that's almost hellish because he's so attached to the, the Naimitika functions of being a Brahman and everything that comes with a certain kind of prestige of being a, an elevated human being or like a prestigious human being. And then Devida says, very well, but I have a, I have a doubt in this, this connection. And that is that the different angas of Vaidhi Bhakti are like significantly connected with matter. So how can you say that that's, that's not naimitika or like, uh, I can't find the word anyway, that that's not, that's not, how is that eternal? Say like deity worship you use all these material ingredients and everything. How is that nitya, dharma? And Lahiri says, my dear son, it took me a long time to understand this point, but try to, you know, pay close attention, try to understand what I'm saying here. And he starts off his explanation of how it's possible that there seems to be a connection with matter, although it's supposed to be eternal, by saying that there's two types of people, really. You can categorize people roughly in two different categories excuse me, that one category is the people who 
look for immediate results in their lives. Basically, just pure karma. Like you look for uh, happiness and satisfaction, and you look for it in your immediate surroundings. And it's this like, um, well, yeah, like an immediate um, grasping at whatever brings pleasure, and you avoid the things in the immediate surroundings that bring pain. And then the other type of people are the ones that strive for like a higher attainment in the future. Like they put in the work now to, to get a higher attainment than just that immediate sense gratification. And then again, you know, there's always all these categories. So, so then he breaks down the second type of, oh, and there's, let me just mention the terms. The people who look for immediate returns are called aihika. And the ones that look for the higher attainment in the future are called paramartika. And um, within the paramartika class of people, he breaks them uh, or categorizes them into three different types. There's uh, the Ishanugatas, who are like theists, theists like they want to worship God. And then there's the Gyananishtas, who are like steady in their uh, pursuit of the impersonal knowledge and impersonal personal uh, attainment. And then there's the Siddhikamis, which means that they look for these kind of like mystical perfections or mystical uh, powers. And I thought it was interesting, but Bhaktivinod mentioned through Lahiri Mahasaya's mouth that the materialistic scientists are part of these Siddhikamis. I guess because they sacrifice a lot to get these results that bring bring uh, dividends in the future. And then uh, Lahiri goes on to explain the different ways these different categories worship uh, Krishna or, or Vishnu and in that way seem like Vaishnavs, like the Siddhikamis. They, we've talked about this before, but they think that they worship Vishnu, but they see him as just one of the devatas or one of the demigods, and that, that Vishnu is under the rule of karma. And the jnanis, they don't even care if, if God is real or not, if he exists or not. They just use worship of God as a method to, to clean their chitta. It's like a form of sadhana that clears out their chitta and so that they can eventually leave behind all forms and um, merge with the absolute. And then Lahiri says that really the only true form of uh, paramartikas or people who look for the, the ultimate uh, attainment, higher attainment in the future is the Ishanugatas. Because there's both in the Gyanishtas and the Siddhikamis, Siddha, there's like a tinge of material um, motivation or in a way that, that the like we talked about before, the sadhya and the sadhana or the practice and the goal don't correspond. Like the siddhikamis and the jnananishtas, they reject their sadhana once they attain their goal. So in that way, their dharma is not uh, nitya. It's not eternal because the dharma is just a means to get to the, uh, to the final goal. And so in this way, the ishanugatas, the followers of the Lord really is the direct translation are considered to be only the real followers of, of, of real uh, paramartikas. And Devi does like his faith keeps growing as these con conversations go further. And he 
recognizes the point, but then he still raises a doubt. He says like um, that the Sri Vigraha, the, the deity form is fashioned by a human out of material elements. So how can that, that form be eternal? And then Lahiri Mahashaya says that, um, let me just read a direct quote because it's, it's a really nice explanation. We probably have to break it down a little bit. And I should mention that, I don't know if you guys had the same, same doubt, but I certainly had this doubt when I was a new devotee. I remember when I, I was 18 and I got into Krishna consciousness and I was really attracted to the, the philosophy part. But then when I went to the temple and there was the deity worship going on, it was just, it felt like strange for sure for me. And the, the doubt was specifically the same doubt, like how is this, this spiritual, you know, you do all these things. And of course the assumption is when you think like that, that your mind is not material, which it is. Then when you get deeper into the philosophy, you realize that whatever you conceive in your mind is also material. But there's this idea in the West that meditation, the kind of meditation that actually happens on the level of the mind, that's spiritual. And the gross matter, that's just purely material. And there's no, there's no bridge between the two. And I remember my ex-girlfriend, she was a Christian and she was like, how can you do this duty worship? It's so disgusting. Like she was totally put off by it. And I remember telling her, well, yeah, that's, that part's a little weird, but I, I really like the other stuff. So that, that was my, you know, misconception at that time when I became a devotee, I, I could not make the connection. And so Devi Das is a fa um, voicing this exact same, same doubt here. And so the direct quote I wanted to say is that, so Lahiri Mahashai, the way he answers is, first he says that, well, the deity form is not like that. It's not material. Like Bhagavan is everywhere. He's all, um, what is the word? Uh, omnipresent. He's everywhere. Yeah, all pervasive is the word. And then he says, Lahiri says, Bhagavan's transcendental form of eternity, bliss, and knowledge is first revealed in the pure consciousness of the jiva, and then it is reflected in the mind. So basically, the Svarupshakti, the, the consciousness, you know, you have a spurti or like a vision of the Lord, and then it reflects on the mind. The eternal form of the deity is fashioned according to this transcendental form revealed in the mind. And by the power of bhakti yoga, which is the Svarup Shakti, the Satchidananda form of Bhagavan then manifests in the deity. When the devotee takes darshan of the deity, that deity unites with the transcendental form of Bhagavan that the devotee sees in his heart. And uh, I guess one thing that comes to mind right away is the story about Prahlad and Hiranyakashipu. Because, so Hiranyakashipu, he had tried to like make his son the same kind of nice demon as he was, but Prahlad was not kind of like learning the, learning the lesson. And so he'd go to school and there were these like demon teachers in the school who were trying to like kind of brainwash him into this like demonic materialistic way of looking at life. But he was like a natural devotee, so his heart just wouldn't go there. 
And so Hirana Kashipu would always ask, like, well, what did you learn today in school? And he would go like, well, I learned that Bhagavan's this and there's all this like glorification of God. And Hirani Kashipu would get like more and more angry about it. And then finally, he just had this breakdown and he's just started like saying, you know, threatened to kill Prahlad as far as I remember. And then he, they were in the assembly hall of the, the palace because he was a king. And he screamed at Prahlad like, where, where is your God? I'm not seeing your God anywhere. Is he in this pillar? And then Prahlad said, yes, actually he is. He's everywhere. And Vishwanath Chakravartitakur, in his commentary to that verse, he says that Prahlad was seeing the Lord right at that moment. And then uh, Hiranyakashipu like rushes off of his throne, and he he's a very powerful guy because he did like something like ten thousand years of yoga uh, austerities by standing on his toes or something crazy like that. And so he's got amazing powers, and he takes he balls up his fists and like smacks into the uh, the column, the pillar of one of the one of the pillars in the hall, and it creates this insanely loud voice that even the demigods up all the way up in the heavens are like freaked out by the sound. They think that the cosmic devastation is happening, like you know, in, in too early or something. And sure enough, from that pillar, Hiranyakashipu like roars and busts out, and then you know the rest is history. But that's all we need to know for this, what I'm talking about right now. And it's just a beautiful example of how Krishna is actually everywhere. He is, you know, as the Paramatma, he's in every single atom. The world, what we think of as matter, is completely permeated by God in every way. Because there's only Bhagavan and his Shakti. And, and that's all there is. So... When we think about like, how is it possible that, you know, we worship a deity and that's somehow spiritual, we're really stuck in this like extreme dualistic way of understanding what matter and spirit are. Like we think they are these completely separate things that have nothing in common. But the thing is that we, you know, Shakti, this is a really difficult topic. It's very, very complicated and hard to understand, but let me try to do my best at making one point about the in relation to this deity worship and that's that there's really actually only one shakti you know shakti is being talked about in different ways in different contexts in the scriptures and so a lot of times we hear there's the antaranga shakti the tata shakti and the bahir bahiranga shakti so basically the you know internal potency marginal potency and then the external potency Oh, Svaruk Shakti, Jeev Shakti, and Maya Shakti. But the scripture also, also says that there's actually only one Shakti. And that, like, Radharani is the fountainhead of, of that one Shakti. But then the Shakti behaves differently and takes different forms according to the function that it's performing. So in that way, there's really... Uh, no, I guess the best way to look at it is kind of like, okay, and I think Prabhupada has given this, uh, this uh, example in a different context. This, if you think about electricity, that's like the one Shakti, right? But then when you run the electricity to different circumstances, it acts in completely opposite ways. Like you have the AC system. You, can, you flip a switch and it cools your house. You flip the switch the other way and it actually warms up your house. 
but it's the same electricity that just functions in two different ways according to the circumstances. So in the same way, it's all, everything is the Shakti of God. It's not that, I guess a lot of times Christians tend to think, I know when you go deeper into Christian theology, theology, it's not necessarily like this, but in general, there's this strong dualism in the Judeo-Christian thought. And so there's this idea that, that the world is completely separated from God. And then God is somewhere high up, completely separate from the material world. And they have almost nothing to do with each other until a Messiah comes and brings the good tidings or whatever. But the, the Gaudiya perspective is, is quite different. And my Gromash likes to use this term panentheistic, which means that God is completely transcendent and completely in, imminent in the world at the same time. And to me, that is like such a beautiful idea. It's this perfect achintya beta beta kind of harmonization of the difference between um, matter and spirit. So anyway, um, so in this way, like when you think about the deity, for example, the Svarup Shakti is kind of like the flip of the switch, like in that example of electricity, that when that Svarup Shakti comes th through the bob of the devotee who kind of like imposes his bob on the deity, the deity turns on, so to speak, like, the, the, like God is in the deity, the deity is directly Bhagavan. And I'm not claiming that I understand this because I'm obviously like, I don't have that kind of level, <laughs> not even close of realization, but theoretically we can speak about this and try to, the best we can try to understand how that could be possible. So that's the switch that happens like, like the Shakti, the, the Swarup Shakti starts coming through or is manifesting in that deity based on the, like Bhaktivinoda says in what I just read, that the heart of the devotee kind of unites with the, the image of, of the Lord who is actually directly present in the deity. Anyway, that's, that's the best I can do. I hope you got something out of it. <laughs> and uh, if you have any further realizations or thoughts about that, I would love to hear that in the, in the end of the class. And, you know, I clearly need to think about these things a little more, but that's the best I can do at the moment. And it's a, to me, it's a fascinating area of, of Achinta Beta Beta, how um, there's only one Shakti, but it plays out differently in different circumstances. It's, uh, to me, a very clean, beautiful theological idea. Okay, and then, uh, so after giving that explanation about how the deity or, or how Krishna manifests in the deity, uh, Lahiri Mahasaya makes the point that that when a jnani worships the Sri Vigraha, their idea is that that the material object, the whatever is included in the worship, they turn into Brahman momentarily during the worship. And then when you stop the worship, then Brahman disappears and then it's again a material item. And uh, Lahiri Mahashai makes the point that if you have that kind of vision, excuse me, then it really is just a material object. It, that's not really Nitya Seva or eternal service because your view of 
of it is so limited. Um, and so this basically that, that this chapter was all about how Vaidhi Bhakti is eternal. And this is basically what Lahiri is, is saying that if, if you practice Sudha Bhakti, because there's no difference really between your practice and your goal, then that Sudha Bhakti, Vaidhi Bhakti is eternal, although it looks like you're using material elements and all this temporary stuff to worship God. So it really comes down to Vaidhi Bhakti is eternal only when it's Sudha Bhakti in the context of Vaidhi Bhakti. Uh, Vaidhi Bhakti in the context of Sudha Bhakti, because otherwise uh, you're just using material objects to kind of jump ahead and, and reach this undifferentiated state of Brahman. Um, so at this point, Devidas is actually quite convinced by these arguments. And uh, he recognizes that, that actually the Gyanis attempt to worship uh, the Sri Vigraha is just trying to cheat Bhagavan, basically trying to cheat liberation out of Bhagavan by acting like you love him, but you just, you want to grab something. Once you get it, you just grab it and run. And then that day draws to a close. Devidas goes back to his place. And then when they come back the next day and they sit down, and they're about to start doing their practices and stuff. The Kazi, which is kind of like a governor, the Muslim Kazi shows up to the assembly. And the Vaishnavs are very respectful towards the Kazi, and the Kazi is very respectful towards the Vaishnavs. And they uh, start conversing about different theological things. And so because Lahiri Mahasha is very learned and he studied Farsi and Arabic and, and the Islamic faith, he starts asking these questions to Kazi, the Kazi. And basically, it turns out that the Kazi is a descendant of Chand Kazi, who Mahaprabhu, as you, I'm sure you all know the story, Mahaprabhu showed all this mercy to Chand Kazi by chastising him about trying to stop the Sankirtan in Navadvip. And um, so then they start talking about it, and it turns out that this Kazi is basically like an unalloyed devotee or Shuddha Bhakta in the context of the Muslim faith, like uh, all the different ideas of the Gaudiya Sambanda, he they have all these same ideas, but he has all these like Arabic terms for the same things like the Bada Jiva and the Shuddha Jiva and the nature of, of the ultimate um, attainment, you know, where you're with God and you don't really worship God, but life itself is, is worship. So basically there's this whole conversation and it's like, cause the Kazi has gotten the, the pure conception from Mahaprabhu and it's coming out through the, um, the framework of Islam basically. And that's how the fifth chapter ends. But then the sixth chapter, which is called Nitya Dharma, Race and Caste, um, it starts with the explanation of how disturbed Devidas, the son of Lahiri Mahashai, was after that, kind of witnessing that exchange. And he'd been a teacher for a good while, and, and he had this strong faith that the Brahmans are the, the highest caste and the best people on earth and that you can't really 
achieve mukti without first taking birth as a brahman and this sounds kind of like wild i think to us because we're used to thinking in terms of Gaudiya vaishnavism but if you um if you get acquainted with the um hindu ideas and especially the dharma shastra it's actually a very common idea that you purify yourself gradually and that you can't jump ahead which we agree but there's a different i'll talk about that later but anyway so you gradually purify yourself and then the the height of purification is that you you take birth as a brahmana and then you get the chance to to finalize your purification and reach mukti and so devidas had been reading he was a, a student of nyaya and dharma shastra and these texts are exactly that's that's what they're saying and so he was extremely extremely disturbed by this idea that the Vaishnavas were giving so much respect to the Muslim Kazi and that they were having this exchange that seemed like they were on equal terms. And uh, it, I guess it really shows how like, because it seemed like Devidas started having faith in the Vaishnav Dharma, but because it was very weak, the faith was weak and materialistic you could say or like a kanishta faith one uh kind of what's the word um characteristic of a kanishta faith or like neophyte faith is that it has to come in the right packaging and so previously devidas had been hearing the vaishnav dharma or the vaishnav siddhanta from two very experienced and old brahmans like you know sophisticated elderly brahmanas which was vaishnav das babaji and his father lahiri mahashai so he could take it from them they were well they were they were able to convince him because it was coming from the right source but when it started when the same siddhanta started coming from the mouth of the kazi he was completely disgusted disgusted by it and then, unfortunately this is a it's a pretty common thing in the Gaudiya vaishnav world and any kind of religious i think society that we tend to be really attached to the form that the truth comes in like a very quick example it's just like how uh, a lot of iskon devotees back in the day couldn't tolerate the idea that that some iskon devotees would hear from shila shidhar Maharaj, for example because it was not coming in the right package it was not the Prabhupada packaging and it was extremely disturbing to their minds and so basically that's what Devi does going through right now. Uh, he, he swears that he'll ignite this blazing fire and burn this heretical view to, to the ground, you know? And then what he starts doing is he's wondering like, how can it be that the, the local Brahmanas in, in that, you know, Navadvip area are not like attacking this heretical view. And he's thinking maybe there's some new thing that they haven't heard about yet. So I'm going to go and start talking to them and we're going to get together and, and, you know stage an attack and that's exactly what he does and um a, a couple of days he applies himself wholeheartedly to the task and gets together with all the the most respected brahmanas in the area and then one morning they show up to to pradumya kunj where all the babajis are they've just had prashad and they're ready to go on their madhukari excuse me and the, the leader of the Brahmanas is this guy called Krishna Chudamani. 
and he's this short guy with a very black nice luster and these like starry like eyes very like a commanding personality and uh, he steps forward and he says that he they would like to you know understand why the Vaishnavs associate with Muslims or like uh, with outcasts and who is the most out of all you who's the most uh, skilled debater we want to debate this matter with you um and Prem Das Babaji, who's the leader of the Babajis, he says very humbly, like, well, who, who are we? You know, we're just fools. Like, we don't know anything about debating. All we know is that we follow the example of the previous Mahajans, and that's our life and soul. And Tudamani, he's a kind of a proud guy. He says, what kind of, what, what is this, you know, nonsense that you say that you follow the example of the previous Mahajans, but but you're constantly going against the Shastra and the Hindu society by by mixing with castes and, and mixing with outcasts, especially like you're not following the Dharma of, of being a Hindu. And this really upsets the Babajis because they feel like because that the Churaman is attacking the Mahajans and they get together, they, they congregate in one of the Kutirs and the Babajis and they say that they have to uh, resp respond to this charge because the Brahmanas are attacking the Mahajans. And so then they decide that Vaishnav Das is going to be the one debating Krishna Churamani. And uh, there's this huge assembly, there's like a hundred uh, Brahmanas on one side. They set up this, like, uh, what would you call it? Uh, debating arena in the <laughs> Uh, Malati Madhavi Kunja. There's this one beautiful Kunja in the uh, overall Pradyumna Kunja where they put seats down, and there's a hundred Brahmanas on one side and a couple hundred devotees on the other side. And then I'm assuming Krishna Chudamani and Vaishnavdas are facing each other in the center, like a boxing ring or something, <laughs> intellectual boxing ring or Shastric boxing ring. And um, Trudamani is making the point that that only a person who actually follows the Shastra can be called a Mahajan. And if you just decide to call somebody a Mahajan that you like and you're, you're materially, you just somehow think somebody is a cool person, you can't just, you know, pick a person and call him a Mahajan. I mean, this is a very offensive attitude on, on Trudamani's part. He's basically saying that the Vaishnavs don't understand the Shastra and they they go against the Shastra by not following its, in, following its injunctions. And uh, you could make the point that Chudamani has a point in a way that you can't just like come up with your own religion and then follow that instead of trying to follow the eternal principles of, of Dharma. So it seems like he, he's making a reasonable point. It's like, don't, don't come up with your own stuff. Follow the scriptures that are given to us by, you know, in succession by purified souls. That's eventually, you know, you can trace it back to God. And God is like giving his revelation so that we can follow it and purify ourselves and, and go back to Godhead, basically. Or, or reach mukti, depending on what your view is. And... 
I, the, uh, a couple of months ago, I picked up the Manu Samhita because I was interested in like, what is it actually saying? Because there's so much, the more conservative Gaudiya Vaishnavas, they, they tend to like quote the Manu Samhita and kind of like um, justify their, um, what would you call them? Traditional or conservative social views based on the Dharma Shastras, basically. So I was like, well, what is this book actually saying? And if you only read the Manu Samhita, which is one of the main works of the Dharma Shastras, you know, this view that Krishna Chudamani is saying here, it's not at all unreasonable. It's like, wow, like, I guess that's what the teaching is. But of course, there's much more to it, which we'll get to a little later. And another point to make is that it's like objectively true. And this is, I've heard this from like um, uh, religious scholars who have nothing to do with Hinduism or Gaudiya Vaishnavism. This one scholar made the point that it's, it's absolutely amazing how stable the Hindu society has stayed for like centuries and centuries. And he was attributing the reason to this, like that strong um, Varnashram system where society is highly stratified to, to function in this um, kind of like optimized way, you could say. Everybody has their position based on their, their natural qualities and they function in that uh, position and they have this sense that ultimately the goal of life is mukti. So like all this jostling for position in the world, it's kind of like not so important because there's a higher goal. Whereas if you're completely materialistic, whatever happens in this sphere of existence, the material existence is the, the final goal. So you're much more aggressive in trying to get everything you can in this world. And so, you know, you can you could say, okay, well, Chudamani is making a good point. Um, And what is the, like, why are the Vaishnavs going against this, like, tried and true systems of, of having a peaceful society, which in turn enables people, because it's peaceful and stable, it enables them to progressively um, move towards mukti, which is the ultimate goal on the basic Hindu level. We, of course, have a different view. But anyway, that's the basic Hindu understanding. And uh, in our time, like I mentioned, this definitely plays out in the Gaudiya scene as well. There's kind of like two different schools. There's the conservative school and then the more liberal school. And just recently, there was a debate on the Namras podcast about Vaishnavi Diksha gurus. And there were two ISKCON members on both sides of the aisle. And um, the gentleman on the conservative side who has spent many decades in in india uh, he his point was very much similar to what uh Chudamani is saying basically that you can't just make up your own shastra you have to base your arguments on the scriptures and then he kept quoting this one verse from uh that's quoted in the Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu that says, Shruti Smriti Puranadi Pancharatra Vidhim Bina Aikantiki Harer Bhakti Utpatayat Vakalpate. And basically saying, if you worship the Lord 
if your worship of the Lord is not based on the Shrutis and the Smritis and the Upanishads and the Puranas and Pancharatras, it's just a disturbance to society. And so when, so this, this devotee was basically trying to say that if you are for Vaishnavi Diksha gurus, that means that you're not following the Shastra because there's all these Dharma Shastra uh, statements about, you know, women's position and stuff, whatever. And, and he was saying that, you know, this, this verse says that, you know, Dharma Shastra is part of the Smriti, so you have to follow the Dharma Shastra. And so it sounds like, oh, that's interesting. Like, hmm, I wonder, you know, does he have a point or something? But then you go to the commentary of that section in, in the Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu. And the whole, <laughs> it's the second, if you want to read it, it's the Eastern uh, division or Eastern wave, the second chapter where that verse is quoted. And the whole chapter is about how you have to reject Varnashram in the end. A big part of that, <laughs> that um, chapter is about rejecting Varnashram if it gets in the way of your bhakti. So that Iskand devotee who was the conservative devotee, it seemed like he was making a good point, but then you go to the source and Jiva Goswami specifically says that this verse is referring to the bhakti shastras. And we know like Srimad Bhagavatam later on, uh, Vaishnav Das is gonna quote all these verses about how even the dog eater outcast is better than the best Brahman if they are a devotee and the Brahman is not. If they chant Harinam, they are the best of best, best of the best. And so it's really, to me, it's very unfortunate and sad that devotees are trying to um, justify this like karma mishra bhakti which means their understanding of bhakti is mixed up with karmic or in this context the dharma ideas of of what's appropriate and how people should behave because devotion completely overrides karma and and if you don't understand that then you start mixing gyan and karma into bhakti like it's so important to understand theoretically how bhakti is uh, completely independent of karma and jnana. And of course, we can't fake like that we're on this complete Shuddha bhakti level. So we might have to incorporate some of it. And we'll talk about that later as well. But we have to understand that, and that devotee was making the point that basically he was, I think he was saying that bhakti is, bhakti has to be according to all the shastras, which include dharma shastras. And that's just not the teaching. If you, if you read the Bhakti Rasam Dasindu and all the Goswami Grantas, it's very, very clear that, that is not the teaching. Bhakti is completely independent and we should never try to force bhakti under the lower shastras. Um, and for, you know, for Western devotees, this is, you know, it's exciting to hear this, at least for me, it's like, yes, like we're not some like Taliban version of Hindus, you know, <laughs> you know, this like oppressive, you know, rules, and it's just so extremely like preoccupied with all these externals and rules and stuff. But the thing is, from the Hindu, traditional Hindu point of view, Gaudiya Vaishnavism is an extremely radical movement. So we, at the same time, kind of have to em empathize with Krishna Chudamani and, and Devi Das in a way that 
they come from a certain background where these religious ideas are like strongly instilled in their chitta you know that's part of that who they are and it's very hard to let go of such like core ideas of of how you understand religion and and the world and your faith and everything like that and again it comes down to what lahiri said earlier that that everybody acts according to their adhikar but when the the dharma shastra followers try to impose the dharmic the lower dharmic understanding on krishna consciousness that's when the devotees have to push back sometimes and that i feel like should be pushed back at this idea that that vaishnavis can't be diksha gurus it's just another form of imposing karmic ideas on shuddha bhakti and um I think I want to stop there for now. It's we're 50 minutes in, and I think it feels like a natural place to stop. And uh, I was rambling a little bit today, but I had a lot of thoughts on my mind, but I uh, couldn't quite like capture them as I wanted, but I hope you guys got something out of it. And uh, let's see if you guys have any comments or questions. I would love to hear from you. Haribol, Guru Nishtaji. Haribol, Amkar. Thank you for the best. You're really good. I'm sorry I can't catch much while I'm cooking, but no what, I did, what I did catch was you asked about um, comments perhaps on that Shakti being one, you know? Yeah. And uh, I, I discussed yesterday with Shamsundar or two days ago about um, kind of how there's Maya, Mahamaya, and then there's Yoga Maya. Yeah. And those are both sort of termed as illusion. But then, then the pure consciousness being in one way only able to be termed as Brahman. So, so those two forms of Shakti, which are in a sense illusion, um, are just transformation of the same Shakti, but yeah. forming a different type of illusion. That was really interesting. And I'm still trying to sort of wrap my head around that. And I like that you emphasize that. And that's a really nice, uh, nice thing to think about a lot that yeah there's just really only one energy yeah yeah and of course the illusion of yoga maya is like more real than brahman <laughs> so you can think of it as illusion i guess from the tattvic point of view in some ways you could say like that but that's also i think an interesting point but yeah that that's exactly what i was trying to say that it and but then then the interesting question is which i don't i can't really answer very well but the interesting question is if there's only Mahamaya and Yoga Maya, what what's the Tatasta Shakti made out of? Mm. <laughs> but that actually, my wife Vrindran is is uh, going into this stuff right now. She's about to come out with some really amazing articles about that. That this is part of the stuff that she's looking into based on Jiva Goswami's Sandarbas. So you know, stay tuned. There's some really, really interesting kind of groundbreaking stuff coming out soon. Uh, cool. Looking forward to it. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Anybody else? Hare Krishna. Haribo, Maroj. How are you doing? Uh, good, good. Thanks for asking. Uh, I just uh, want to share like a uh, little realization from what you're saying. Mm -hmm. about 
it's impressive for me how uh, Bakhtino Takur like can put himself in the shoes of these different people and this like showing that like uh, like all these personalities uh, acts under some under some combination of material modes or something so he can exactly put them into some like like these arguments like are eternal like you can find such guys on the internet and stuff <laughs> that's a nice thing yeah that's that's a really nice point and i guess also because he's kind of looking at the whole thing from the thirty thousand foot view like the you know the airplane view because the, like the Bhakti Shastras are kind of like the, uh, you could say the culmination or the, what's the right word, uh, harmonization of all the other Shastras, because he could look at the the world of Shastra from that kind of like bird's view, then it's easier to say to put yourself in the shoes of somebody else. Like you, it's easier to understand where they're coming from, when you can look at their adhikar and see the kind of like the gradation or the progression of Arikar. But yeah, it's I've been thinking about that same thing. It's like Bhaktivinod makes really good counter arguments on the on the part of the opposition to, to Bhakti, basically. And so much of the first, first part of uh, Jaiva Dharma is exactly that. Like he's trying to come at Bhakti from all these different angles and try to like raise these, these objections. And then his characters just like answer one objection after another. Well, definitely well done. Anything else? Not for me, thanks. <clears throat> okay. Okay, I guess that's for today. And uh, then next time. I'm gonna. I didn't really get to the actual debate between Chudomani and Vaishnavdas, but we'll get into the part where they talk about race and caste and culture and and how that relates to uh, the kind of like the level of adhikar and and all this this stuff. And we'll see how the Vaishnav conception of of adhikar is this paramartic idea or this like otherworldly idea of of um, eligibility and how it it goes beyond this like material idea of how eligibility and spiritual progress really works and especially the you could say the place of um, mercy is extremely important in bhakti it kind of like upends the whole gradual process in so many ways anyway i think i've talked enough Thanks everybody so much for coming and uh, let's connect again next week hopefully. Kaur Premanand Hari 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 Bo. Hari Hari Bo.